Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Well, hey there, it's Nico. By now, you probably know who I am, but awkwardly, I know a whole lot less about you. So many of you tell me that you're listening to the show and I really want to know you more. Who are you? Why are you tuning in? What do you want most from Suncast? Let us know by going to mysuncast.com forward slash survey. It takes just five minutes and we'll read every answer. That's mysuncast.com forward slash survey. All right, here's the show. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, happy Thursday, Solar Warriors. I am delighted as always to have you tune in yet again to explore the career and lessons learned from clean energy executives who inspire and inform me. Hopefully they'll do the same for you in your own journey and growth. If you are new to Suncast, welcome to our tribe. I hope that you'll find this information helps you enter through that side door and bypass some of the hard-won life lessons that I tease out from hundreds of our guests. Today's entrepreneur's story is with someone you probably already know if you are a Suncast faithful. You'll be familiar with his voice, at least Mr. Chuck Swoboda has graced the podcast and a couple of times recently as Tactical Tuesdays and a keynote for our Suncast Summit back in April. His legacy and impact at Cree Incorporated are indeed legendary, and he's put many of those fabled stories and lessons learned into his recently launched book, The Innovator's Spirit. We talked about that at the summit. We've talked about it a little bit here, and we've also talked about his fantastic podcast, Innovators on Tap, which I can't recommend highly enough. But I just wasn't satisfied with just getting the details on his book. And as you might suspect, and as I tend to do, there are some other stories that Chuck was holding back. Well, he didn't disappoint in this interview. So hold on to your hats as Chuck Swoboda and I take a fascinating look at his career leading up to and through Cree's meteoric rise in the LED world. From hilarious family stories to heartbreaking life lessons about the reality of leading a fast growth company, Chuck really does open the kimono and let us peer into the career of one of the most intriguing stories I've chronicled on Suncast yet. As you might also suspect if you're a longtime Suncast faithful here, it was so interesting and insightful that in fact we needed two episodes. So you probably noticed this is part one. We'll drop part two sequentially. And I hope that you will enjoy these. Hey, did you know that Cree wasn't even created to take on LED lighting? Well, if that surprises you, you're in for a treat. And if you really love these kinds of insights, then you should check out the hundreds of additional founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in whatever podcast player you're using. And subscribe to our Energy Tribe newsletter so that you won't miss out on the next information we send your way. For now, 
Let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into a very powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we have the honor, the pleasure, the joy of the presence of a new friend of mine, fellow podcaster, fellow innovator and entrepreneur, Mr. Chuck Swoboda. He is the innovator in residence at Marquette University. And many of you may have already read that he's the retired chairman and CEO of Cree Incorporated. Chuck is a perennial leader, thinker, and as such is a board member for really four companies actively now and is also the author of the forthcoming book, The Innovator's Spirit, which is a phenomenal dive into the mindset of innovation. And if you haven't checked it out yet, you should also check out Innovators on Tap, Chuck's podcast, which does exactly that. Get into the mindset of thinkers and innovators, including, I'll note, his good friend Tom Werner, many of you know as the CEO of SunPower. Before we dive into all that, first, Chuck, welcome to Suncast. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. For what it's worth, I also want to take a moment and give a hat tip to uh, your former employee and our friend, our mutual friend, Greg Merritt over at SEPA for kind of connecting us inadvertently. <laughs> I know Greg lives down in the Triangle with us and uh, in the Raleigh-Durham area, although now he is obviously up in D.C., but thanks to Greg, you and I had a chance to get to know each other. I appreciate his introduction, and honestly, uh, he and I had a really interesting journey together, and I'm sure we'll cover some of those stories today, but uh, there were a few moments when we were trying to convince people about the idea of LED lighting where I was like, are you sure this is going to work? He said, just keep saying it. Trust me, just keep saying it. People will start to listen. So uh, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. You know, I wonder when you were, let's go to maybe 10 years old, but we'll call it early life. Did you have that dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up? No, I'm the fifth out of six kids. So I am uh, you know, pretty late in the birth order. I have a, a brother who's 10 and a half years older than I am. And then three sisters, myself, and then a little sister. And so... You know, I grew up in this really interesting environment that it was, I mean, big families are a unique dynamic, right? It was, uh, you're challenged every day. Uh, you get a lot of freedom because, you know, as you learn as a parent, uh, when you get more kids than parents, you can't play man-to-man defense. You got to learn to play a zone. And uh, when it comes to uh, six kids, you're playing a pretty loose zone because there's a lot of free time. And then I think having older brothers and sisters also kind of set a standard for me to react to. And it didn't hurt developing some skills that would, you probably didn't know it at the time, would become in handy later, which is this idea of, you know, how do you survive in a, in a group of people and know when to, when to get attention if you need it, but when to avoid it when you don't. It was a great experience. And, you know, just an interesting story. My brother ended up uh, also becoming a CEO. So uh, during his career, he's now retired, but uh, he was the CEO of two different companies in the LED-related business uh, later on in his career. So at one point, we were actually competitors with each other. Both in the LED business? Yes. And in fact, when he took his job as CEO of a company called Bridgelux, Cree happened to be in a very big patent lawsuit with them. So the day he told me that, uh, hey, I'm taking this job, I thought he was joking. I couldn't believe wow. he would. There's no way my brother's taking a job as my competitor that I'm in a lawsuit with. But he did. And uh, it led to an interesting few years of having to work through some issues there. It was definitely a tricky time. But yeah, so both of us were CEOs in the same industry and, and at times in different places, really working together as we built the LED lighting industry. Not, not intentionally, it just happened to be we were both there at the same time coming at it from two different angles. 
That must have made for some interesting holiday dinners. It did. There was one, in fact, uh, so this is what two guys who uh, are very competitive that are in the LED business do at Thanksgiving. We were going to California to visit my brother and his family. He had worked at LumiLeds at the time, which was an early pioneer in LEDs. And he'd always, they were early to make LED flashlights. And so he was always giving these things away to people. Hey, isn't this a cool flashlight? He'd given it gifts. One year he gave everyone at Christmas in my family these LED flashlights. And the implication was not, not only is this a cool flashlight, but I have one and I don't know why Chuck doesn't have one. So when I go out there for Thanksgiving that year, I'm like, we're going to do something. So I went to my head of R&D and I said, look, I need a flashlight for Thanksgiving and I need to be really good. So he took a prototype LED that we'd been working on and he built me a custom flashlight. Got out there. We're sitting there in his, uh, we're sitting there in his family. I go, hey, by the way, you got any new flashlights? He goes, yeah. I go, I got one too. He goes, really? And he turns his on and I turn this thing on and it just blows it away. I mean, I knew what he had, right? So we had literally taken his flashlight and replaced the LED and our wives are sitting there looking at us like, this is not right. You guys, you cannot even be together for more than an hour and you're competing in who has the brightest flashlight. So that was kind of how it was. It was a, but I think it was a healthy competition. And even though we were competing with each other, the worst case scenario was your brother was going to be successful. So it was kind of a combination of you were rooting for them and competing at the same time. What did competition look like in the Swoboda household sort of pre-college? Everything was a competition. So there wasn't a game that was played that there wasn't, you know, kind of a battle over, right? So cards was a big thing in my family and you play cards and it wasn't fun until at least one or two people were crying. And it was like, if you won, it was a big celebration. There was a lot of smack talking, um, basketball in the driveway. So my brother was 10 years older than I am. So for a long time, it wasn't much competition, but as I got older and got bigger, those are some pretty brutal battles that actually probably were tougher in our 30s and 40s than they were growing up because when I was the same size, it got worse. But even my sister, Patty, who was uh, super competitive, I mean, I, I still remember playing in the driveway with her and it was, I mean, throwing elbows with each other. It was it was a battle. And so I think, you know, whether it was who had the best grades, winning at sports, winning at cards, I think that competitive environment really turned out to be a help later on. You know, we mentioned in the intro that you're the entrepreneur in residence at Marquette University. For those not unfamiliar, maybe don't live in the U.S., Marquette is up in Wisconsin. Clearly, you grew up in the cold climate of, uh, of Chicago. What led you to Marquette in particular as, the, as the, the logical exit from Liberty, Illinois? So Marquette is in downtown Milwaukee. It's about an hour from Libertyville. My brother went there. So he picked first. And, you know, growing up, you got one brother and a lot of sisters. He's either your buddy or he's your enemy. He was my buddy, right? He was my mentor. I wanted to be like him. So I was ingrained early on that this is this cool place that I think I want to be a part of. And then in 1977, he's a student there and I'm 10. And Marquette happens to make it in the NCAA championship. That year, as they marched through the championship, I remember watching each of the games with my dad. My brother's away at school and it got more exciting by the moment. I told my dad that night, if Marquette wins the national championship, I'm going to college there. And they did. And I never intended to go anywhere else. So I was a very early commit to college. And it was, it was part of it as I wanted to be a part of whatever he was experiencing. But uh, yeah, it was actually a decision based on, uh, I was just so enamored by that basketball team that I wanted to somehow try to be a part of it later in life. And so today, 
I am continue to be a really avid fan to the point where I live part time in Milwaukee so I can go to games. Is this the same brother who eventually led Bridgelux? Yes. Yeah. So I remember it's so it's just my brother and I, right? There's my brother and I and a bunch of sisters in between. Oh my goodness. What a story. Now, what my ears hear, my brain thinks, perhaps sometimes two different things. So you say you were an early commit to Marquette, and I'm thinking about um, the 27 years you spent at Cree, and it seems to me like you're the kind of person who commits and and stays with an idea for a long time. <laughs> you know, speaking of which, you did have a you know long career as a CEO at Cree, but you were four years at HP before Cree. And then, uh, you know, 27 years at Cree, 16 of which were chairman and CEO, or at least CEO and then chairman CEO. As best I recall, you spent about five years moving up through operations before ultimately becoming the CEO. I'd like to understand on your way to becoming CEO, can you give us a couple of examples of things that you learned in that journey that helped define you as a leader and prepared you ultimately for running a company? So, when I joined Cree, I took the job. It was called LED product manager, and it sounds really cool. But when you get there, you realize it's a 30-person company, and that's a glorified name for the sales and marketing guy. I was the head of sales and marketing, but I was also the only person in sales and marketing. And the day I got there, my first day on the job, it started out where I said, hey, welcome. We're kind of busy right now, but we got you this office over here why don't you get started and we'll come back and grab you at lunch? And I said, what do you want me to do? He said, put your office together. And you walk in and on the floor are three boxes, a desk, a chair, and a bookshelf. And this is O'Sullivan furniture, kind of you have to glue all together. And so your first job in the company was to build your office. And there's a Mac Classic sitting in the corner. So that's going to be your computer. So that's how I started my first day. And in the afternoon, we started talking about the business. And I said, so how's it going? They go, well, you know, when we hired you, we had had this customer that was buying LEDs, but they've canceled all their orders. So we don't have any orders anymore. So here I am, I'm a couple thousand miles away from my wife, who's still in Colorado trying to sell our house. And with our young daughter, she's pregnant with our second child. And I've just joined this company in the middle of nowhere. And I'm the head of sales and we don't have any customers. And I'm going, okay, this is going to be experience. This is an interesting experience. And I didn't tell my wife for years that what I found out that first day, because I didn't want to freak her out. And I just said, okay, let's just go figure it out. And from that moment, Cree became this series of just figuring it out. And, and to put that in perspective, before I chose Cree, I had liked being at HP, but I was getting pretty frustrated in the big company environment and the system. And so I had started to apply to go get an, an advanced degree. So I was looking at both business school and actually going back to law school to become a patent attorney because HP was going to pay for it. I just, I was bored. I needed to do something different. And one of the sales pitches to join Cree and Neil Hunter, who's one of the founders, made me this pitch. He said, look, don't go back to school and get an MBA. He goes, come to Cree and I'll give you a Cree MBA. And he goes, there is no classes and you'll just do it. And so literally I got thrown in. So I started out and within a week, I got on an airplane and flew around the world to go meet customers to see if we could get some orders. And it literally, you're kind of out there by yourself, just figuring it out. And then you get back and you start sampling one product. I remember one trip I went out and I take samples of a product and I'm halfway through the trip. I call back one night and I said, hey, I uh, just want to check in. How's it going? Well, hey, it's going good, except we need to tell you something. You know those samples we gave you? Yep. That product actually doesn't work. So what I want you to do is I want you to tell the customers it's a prototype of a product, but 
tell them the specs are going to be different, but we still want to get their reaction. And then when you get back, we'll figure out what this new one looks like and you can send them the new ones out. So literally you would be in the middle of a sales trip and it would just change and you'd have to figure it out. Or there was a day probably at Korea year, we finally start getting designed in. We had the world's only blue LED at the time. So this is a big deal. We get it designed in and I'm sitting in my office and Neil Hunter, the same guy who recruited me there comes in and he goes, I need to show you something. And he had a fax. And on the fax was a press announcement from this company in Japan called Nichia Chemical. And they had announced an LED that was about 300 times brighter than ours. And I'm going, oh, this is kind of bad. Like, it's the same price and it's 300 times better. What are we going to do? And Neil goes, don't worry. We're going to have one too. We do? He goes, no, we're going to have one. But don't worry about it. You're going to tell people we do have one. Okay. What is it? We're going to sit down right now and we're going to create the data sheet. So we literally, we sat in my office and we typed up the first specs for Cree's high power blue LED. And it was, was it a figment of our imagination? No, but we just kind of looked at what they had on their data sheet and made ours look really similar. So people might be willing to try it. And I got on a plane the next week and flew to Asia and started telling customers about our great new product and taking orders and said, we ship samples in six months. Meanwhile, the team at Cree, we had to go figure it out. They literally had to go, okay, now you guys got to figure something out. So they literally had to change material systems and build an LED and get it qualified so we could sample it in six months and they made it. Now, it wasn't exactly what the data sheet said, but it was close enough. And so you start living through those experiences and that led to, we get designed it in a, a sign company in Hong Kong. And this is going to be our first big volume win and Neil comes into my office out of a board meeting one day and goes, you know, our LED makes their product possible. It doesn't exist without us. I want you to go buy the company. What do you mean go buy the company? Well, go buy it. How do you buy a company? I don't know. I've never bought one. Just go figure it out. All right. Get on an airplane, fly to Hong Kong, sat down with a guy named Tony Vandevin, which is one of the co-owners. And I still remember sitting on his back deck at his house that was in the mid-levels on Hong Kong Island. And we started out drinking, I think we started out drinking beer and ended up finishing with bottles of wine. But after about eight hours, we cooked up this plan of he hated his partner anyways, and that we should buy his company. And so we worked out the, the framework from a deal. We ended up buying that business. So next thing I know, I'm not running sales and marketing. I'm running this business based in Hong Kong with four employees making moving bar signs. We had the first one with RGB. And so this is going great. We've got this sign. Everyone loves it. We're in Sam's Club. And they gave us half the stores to test against the competitor that doesn't have full color. So like, we're going to win this for sure. We're measuring it. We're watching like crazy. We can see the store sales. We know we're going to win the test. And if we win it, we're getting all the stores. So we're so confident. We order an extra three containers worth of signs because it's going to take you otherwise eight weeks to 12 weeks to get them. So we pre-order them. And we go to our big review meeting in Bentonville, Arkansas at the Sam's Club headquarters. It's Neil and I with our sales guy at the time. And you're sitting in this particle board cube. So literally is a cement floor and particle board walls with metal folding chairs. The buyer comes in and goes, hey, I know I haven't met you, but we rotated buyers last week. So the person that was running this category is not anymore. I'm your new guy. Okay, great. He goes, I need to tell you that I used to work with this company that you bought a few years ago when I was at a different job. And when they ran into capacity problems, they wouldn't ship me any of the products. They shorted me for another vendor. Okay. Yeah. And I just wanted to give you that as background. Okay. Like this isn't going too well. And he goes, so we looked at the store data and at first it looks like you won the competition, 
but I realized that it needed to be adjusted. That you got all the good stores and the other competitor got all the bad stores. So I reran the data with an adjustment factor and you just lost. So sorry, we're canceling all our orders. The sales guy that was with us literally comes out of his chair and he goes to grab the buyer by the throat. So we pull the guy back down. We get out of there. I'm on this little pole jumper leaving Arkansas with my boss. And I'm like, I'm getting fired. Like we bought all these signs. I'm running a division that no longer has a customer. He's just going to fire me. So I, we got on the plane. I said, look, do you want me just to resign? Will that make this easier? He looks at me and goes, are you crazy? No, I'm not going to let you resign. You got three container loads of signs. You better go figure out how to sell them. And that's kind of how life was at Crete. One thing led to another. So we, we built a business that figured out how to sell them. We started developing technology at one point. We took that idea and we made the world's first LED video replay board. So back, and this is in the days when Michael Jordan, the Bulls were playing, we went to a sign show and we built a six foot tall by eight foot wide video screen made out of RGB LEDs. No one had ever done it before. We built the first one. And at the show, everyone kept saying, how did you make a plasma display look like that? Or how did you make projections so bright? We're like, it's LED. Like it can't be LED. It can't be LED. So we had literally opened up this market, started selling it. Korean financial crisis happens. All our customers go out of business. So then we're scrambling again. And you know, so it was, it was a series of, and, and I tell you these because my career was a series of problems that needed someone to jump in and go fix them. I never thought about my career. I didn't plan my career. I just took the next problem to the point where we're kind of fixing that business. It's going pretty well. And on April 1st, 1996, I get a call. I'm in my little office in an offsite place where we're making these signs. And Neil goes, hey, I need you to do me a favor. What's that? I need you to pack up your office and be at the wafer fab tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Okay, why is that? We just fired the guy running the wafer fab. You're now going to be in charge of the wafer fab. Like, what? Yeah, you know as much about manufacturing as most of these other people anyways. You can just do it. Okay, anything else I need? Nope, nope, just be there at seven. John Edmund, who's one of the other founders, he'll introduce you to the team and you're off and running. So literally I packed up my office at six o'clock on night, showed up the next morning and at seven o'clock and now I'm in manufacturing. And off we went. Didn't know really. My entire manufacturing experience to that point was I was a co-op at Ford Electronics when I was in college. That's what I knew about manufacturing. So uh, we jumped in and we figured it out. And uh, that was going pretty well. And three months later, the head of manufacturing for the whole company quit because we had a bunch of product issues and he didn't want to deal with it. So next thing I know, I'm running all of manufacturing for Cree. Did that for a while and kept going. And at some point... uh, Hey, why don't you, since you're, you're handling all this other stuff, why don't you take over these other functions? They, Neil said, could you be the COO? I said, sure, I can be that, whatever you want. That led to another, you know, some more activities. And then at one point, Neil and I are taking a walk one day and he goes, look, and he's now the CEO. He goes, I don't think I want to be the CEO anymore. This has really worn me out. I need a break. I'm willing to still be the chairman, but I, I think you should be the CEO. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I go, well, but I don't want you to decide right now. I want you to think about it for a few days and make sure you really want to do it. And I honestly wasn't sure I was going to say yes, because I had watched how much it had really wore him out. But the final decision was, I would regret not giving it a shot. So I went for it. And I made a commitment to the board that I would be the CEO for three years. And I said, I don't think I want to do it for longer than that, but I'll do it for three years. 65 earnings calls later, which is 16 years and a quarter. And yes, somewhere after about 10 years, I started counting them. 
which has a whole nother implication to it, which means you probably should be doing something else if you're counting them. In any case, I did it for 65 before I finally retired. My career was one series of, hey, there's a problem. Can you go work on that? Yes. I never asked for a job. I never tried to get promoted. I never spent one minute. And so when people ask me about, you have any career advice, which is, yeah, be really good at solving problems and opportunities will find you. And the other thing is, remember, is you don't pick the opportunity. So the timing for all the things that came up, it was never great. But, you know, my little saying I give people all the time is when opportunity knocks, you got to answer the door. And most of us don't like the fact that things come up at the most inconvenient times. But that's how life works, at least in my experience. So I'm kind of the anti-career plan career guy. You know, every commercial solar opportunity counts. So why lose that sale to high demand charges? Did you know that you can offer up to 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth of the cost of installing a battery? With DemandX, the innovative new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy, your client can boost ROI and reduce payback time without all the expense. And as a Suncast listener, you can get a free demand charge analysis by going to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And while you're there, check out three recent case studies on how this easy to install software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. DemandX works for office buildings, retail, churches, and more. See for yourself at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Two things that occur to me uh, through all this is you also were building a family and you were relatively young. You know, how do you build a family during all this? How does that affect your family life? I mean, you were in your 30s when you were promoted as CEO. I was 34 when I became CEO of a public company. And the good news is, is that you have lots of confidence. Uh, the bad news is you have really no experience. But there are days that's a good thing, right? You don't know what's in front of you. And so you kind of are able to charge at it with, you know, kind of an not too worried about what can happen. And honestly, that's the part about the job that eventually wears you out, right? Is you've seen the movie too many times and you actually, you start the beginning of the movie and you know what the end is like. And like, I don't want to do that again. But in the beginning, we kind of jumped into it. But the family, so when I take the job as CEO in 1993, I have three children and my wife and I are, you know, when we had our third child, she was an engineer. She stops working to spend full time with the kids and raise them. And so we really kind of had a tag team deal. I was essentially 100% sucked in at Cree. She was handling the family and we would squeeze things in to make it work around then. And, you know, this is a, you know, a lot of people say their jobs take seven days a week, but Cree really was a seven day a week job that I did not stop thinking about work from the day I said yes to the CEO job till the day I retired. Didn't matter where I was, where I was on vacation. I took phone calls during people's weddings because something happens and you got to take it, right? The family part was a tough balance. My oldest daughter, Kim, she's eight years older than my youngest son. So it's Kim, then Kelly five years later, and then Chuck, I call him Chucky or Chuck Jr. He's bigger than me now, so it's a little weird to call him Chucky. So they're growing up and... I'm not super involved in the early parts. I'm kind of sucked all into Cree. And my daughter decides to go away to college. And about a year before her college choice, I realized, wow, she's going to be gone in a year. And I've missed so many things. So that was the first time I started to jump in and go, okay, while she's still around, I'm going to make sure I take good vacations. And, and I still wasn't around a lot, but I would try to carve out these chunks of time to really engage. We actually bought a house at a lake. They would live at the lake in the summer and I would commute there. It was a 90 minute drive 
from Cree, but I would commute there. I'd stay and carry a couple days a week, and otherwise I'd live there with them just to force me to be in a different environment with them. And then the day I dropped her off at college at Marquette, and we're leaving, and when your kid goes to school in Milwaukee, you live in North Carolina, you fly there back, right? You don't drive your kid there. So my wife and I are going back to the airport, and it's a pretty sad moment when your first kid goes away to college, and we're like, huh, I realized that I had been so busy for 18 years. I had really missed just so many parts of her life that I had, I had an incredible feeling of regret. And I made a commitment to myself on the flight home that day that I was going to take advantage of my next two kids being around in a different way. And so within months, I was then coaching my son's basketball team and his baseball team. So I would be the CEO of Cree. He played on a tryout baseball team starting at six, and they practiced four days a week. So I was the assistant coach for five or six years. So I would go to Cree. I'd have to leave at a certain time, drive to practice for an hour and a half, and then I'd either drive back to Cree or I'd go home and you know work until 11 o'clock at night, and then we'd do it again. But I said, I'm going to find a way to be a part of their lives and try to be a dad. And in hindsight, that time, that that change, I didn't know what was happening, but that change gave me something that if I wouldn't have done that, I would have retired from Cree sooner because that forced break on a regular basis, that moment to be out of the CEO job, it was just a way to recharge and to be a regular person. I mean, I still remember getting off a plane, connect through O'Hare, land in Raleigh-Durham. My wife picks me up in the car. I'm changing into my baseball shirt and shorts because we're coaching a playoff game. And so I'm literally coming straight from China to be a coach at the baseball game. And I didn't think anything of it. It was awesome. It was, that's what I looked forward to. So it took me a long time to find a balance. And so what I would, you know, my advice to other people is, is you got to find what works for you. Neil Hunter, who is uh, one of the founders of Cree and, and my mentor for many years and the CEO before I was, one of his pieces of advice was, if you're really going to be a successful CEO or start your own company, you need to go into it with an honest assessment of what's right for you and your family. And that it either needs to be right for all of you or you need to be prepared that you're going to give them up because there's not a middle ground there. And, you know, there's a huge amount of relationships and families that get blown up by entrepreneurs. And his point was, is you got to go into it with a partnership that's designed for that. And it happens to be, and I don't know that my wife and I planned it, but ours worked out phenomenally. Like it was always a partnership deal. And so it has been a, a great experience and she got incredible joy from the things she worked on. I got it from mine. And in between, we found enough time to, you know, just still, you know, be a family together when we could. I'll never forget one of my mentors who, who similarly changed my life around the same time as um, age-wise, as you were sort of becoming CEO of, of Cree. And I was working for him, a guy named David Flory. I'll never forget him. We were on a business trip in Panama. And I said, he had just been with a company that had sold to Sun Edison. And he'd been at AEE for like 15 years. And his daughters were nine and 12. One of those dinners where you're just, you're in another country. And so you're just having dinner and trying to figure out what to talk about. And I said, what do you regret about what it took to get that company to you know, $400 million valuation and sell it to a big company like Sun Edison? He said... I've spent the last two years repairing my relationship with my daughters, you know, and that moment in time defined the last six years of my life uh, in every way. I see it all the time. I know that you do too. Entrepreneurs and leaders writ large 
who make that exchange and they, they do, it's an exchange. If you're going to truly be an entrepreneur and try to go to the level, right? Do you, you're going to try to go from nothing to build a global company. The intensity and the energy required over many years, you give up a lot to do that. And you've got to love that chase to, to, for this to make any sense at all. So one, you can't kind of half do it, but you have to decide, is it going to be worth it to you? And can you find enough balance? And, and so people always say, did you find balance? I didn't balance. It wouldn't look like balance to a normal person, right? It was enough for me. Do I regret how it turned out? No. I made a choice. I know what choice I was making. I'm a lot smarter now about it. I could certainly, you know, experience is an interesting thing. You got to go through it to get it, right? I, you know, I'm in a place now where I think I could do it better, but I wouldn't trade it. And I'm not sure my kids would ask me to trade it either. You know, we've talked pretty honestly about it. You know, one thing is, is that when your dad's the CEO of a company that's, at least in your area, is pretty well known, it wasn't a great deal for them. You know, they got a lot of fake relationships out of the deal. They've got a lot of people that, you know, when something was, went wrong at Cree, they asked him questions and, it, you know, they never, they handled it, right? It wasn't a big conversation in the family, but I didn't fully appreciate just the scrutiny they were under as part of that. And, uh, you know, in the end, I think it, it worked out for everyone, but uh, you know, you're, you're all giving up a lot. That being said, it creates a lot of opportunities, right? And so you got to decide you give up something to get something in almost every situation. And you just got to decide what's that balance for you. And I think being a little bit more intentional about it is probably the most important thing because there isn't a right answer. There's a right answer for each person at each moment in their life. I remember overhearing a conversation, it was probably on your podcast, where you talked about the number of folks in your cohort who had also become CEOs. How does this idea of a cohort or the idea that you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with, as, as Jim Rohn famously said, make a difference in the career you choose, the career path you take. How would you reflect on that? You know, it's something that doesn't occur to you till after it happens, right? So it's not that, you know, I take this job at HP, we're just all a bunch of relatively young, fresh out of college students. It just happens that a bunch of us would go on to be CEOs or venture capitalists or other things. And you know, if you would have met us back in the day, what we mostly like to do is go out to, to Bennigan's after work and probably drink too much beer and, and goof off. And, and just, you know, we, it was kind of like, it was like this post-college career experience where everyone thought everything was possible. We really had not much respect for the system or authority because we were all in this together. And so we kind of, I mean, at one point, a group of us, we were so frustrated. So we were in the marketing department and, and they were telling us, we want marketing to drive the business. And yet in reality, what happened was, is HP was engineer driven, right? And even though we were engineers, the R&D or the manufacturing guy was really kind of running it. And this is a story we've not told very often, but at one point we got so frustrated, we decided that we needed to do something to make a point. And so we essentially wrote a letter of mutiny. And I think five or six of us signed it. And we wrote a letter to the head. So we worked in a division. So the LED division, it was part of a group. So there was LEDs, optocouplers, and microwave devices. So these three businesses together. And we wrote a letter to the head of the group saying that we were very concerned that we weren't following what the business was really about. And that you know if we weren't going to take what marketing was seriously, there was no point of us sticking around. And, you know, remember, this is Hewlett-Packard, the HP way. They were supposed to be open, right? They, they taught us all this stuff. So we took it literally. Well, 
what we don't appreciate when this is happening is this is HP at 50 years old, right? Bill and Dave still believe that stuff, but most of the people at HP by this time were classic big company bureaucrats, right? And they did not like this, but they didn't know what to do with us. So they took us off site and sat us down with a group of different managers and the group marketing manager and said, explain to me what our problem is. So they spent a whole day trying to make us feel better, listening to our concern, blah, blah, blah. About uh, six months later, the GM of the division was promoted to quality in, in the corporate offices and the group marketing guy became the general manager of the division. So it was one of those moments where the cohort was together. We all really learned to believe that anything is possible. You just got to decide you really want to go do it. And were we ever thinking we were going to get fired? It didn't even cross my mind, right? We were just like, this is the right thing to do. We're just going to go do it and see what happens. And so, I mean, most people are like, you didn't really do it. Yeah, we really did that. I, I don't have the paperwork anymore, in fact, but it, I still remember that they didn't know what to do with us at this offsite. I mean, like, I don't think you guys can mutiny. I don't even know. We aren't even sure what that means. But, but in the end, we were able to drive change. And so I think, and that group of people, you know, today, one of the people is still a sitting CEO. One of them has been a CEO twice and now is a very successful venture capitalist. And another couple have gone on to run their own companies in other places as well. So it was a, if you would have been with us back then, it was just, I don't know. I, I think what we learned is we all learned that anything is possible. I think that's what the cohort taught us all and that it, we reinforced it with each other, right? It was one of those, it's easier when someone else does things to start going, oh, I, maybe I can do that as well. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling dynamic, at least it was for that group. You brought up something that probably for those who aren't history buffs might be surprised as I was to hear that there was an LED division at HP. And I didn't know this before meeting you, but Cree wasn't a company that was started to make LED light bulbs, at least not the ones that we currently, like the industry that we all know and and appreciate now. Can you tell me the story of why Cree got into making light bulbs, ultimately becoming the as I understand it, first to commercialize a successful bulb? Yeah. So the original genesis of Cree is it's it's the two brothers, Neil and Eric Hunter, and three PhDs from NC State. And they decide they're, Neil and Eric want to start a company. And they have these two ideas. One of them's a sales company. And one of them's, we're going to invent silicon carbide semiconductors. And the reason they came up with that idea is because Eric had been a master student at NC State and met these guys working on this technology, right? So they spin Cree out of NC State with the idea they're going to form this you know, new material semiconductor company to work on everything. Like they're going to work on silicon carbide power devices, RF devices, high temperature devices, UV photodiodes, LEDs. So that's how it starts out. And in the beginning, we actually had a picture of a tree and all the branches were all these things we were working on. Um, the reality was, is they were all very small branches. We were just hoping one of them would pan out. In the end, they do. We don't really have on that original chart, this idea we're going to make LED lighting. We know we want to make blue LEDs. And we know that with a blue LED, you could make any color LED, right? So if you take blue, green, and red, you can make any color in the spectrum. That's as far as we had taken it. And if you were to ask me, is there going to be solid state lighting? We would have said yes, but we would have thought it was going to be by combining those three colors. As the technology evolves, blue gets bright enough, you add a phosphor to it, you can make a really nice white LED. And wow, we have a lighting grade LED. The challenge for Cree was is that at first, you have this LED that can change lighting, but no one wants to buy it because they're happy with what they have. So 
that's where Greg Merritt comes in. And we decide we have to convince the world to change. And we start the LED lighting revolution. And one of the first ideas is to create the LED city initiative. So if you think about the dynamic at the time, energy is a big deal, right? We're trying to save energy in the country. So this is right around the energy crisis. And what are we going to do to help save energy? Well, no one knows, right? Like solar's a pretty far away. To, it's actually not a very good way to save energy back at that time. It's a super expensive idea. And you're just, without a ton of subsidies, it was a bad idea. So we're like, well, you know what? With LED lighting, you really could make the math work on this. And so the LED city was a chance to get cities who had an obligation to their citizens to show they were doing something for the energy crisis, a real thing they could go do. The reason we created it was, is we needed someone to prove they would actually use the technology to start to market. So that's the genesis of getting it started. We end up in the lighting business because no one else would make lights. We start making commercial lighting fixtures, and now we're stuck because Cree could make you a downlight or an LED troffer. It was the best product on the market. It was better than any fluorescent or regular incandescent one. But when we would quote on big jobs, we'd almost always lose because we didn't have a brand. And so there's an old saying that no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Well, in a lot of traditional organizations, you know, the guys who make the buying decisions just want to make sure they don't screw it up. Buying from the new vendor is a risky move. And so we needed to become relevant. And so we're growing the commercial lighting business, but we're a little stuck on brand. And this is when the idea comes up that I think we need a brand campaign. And so that's what we think we're going to do originally, right? Is we're going to go out and build brand. And at the same time, in parallel, we're trying to sell our LEDs to the light bulb companies again to make LED light bulbs. After two years, they're not making much progress, but I have said we're not getting in the B2C business. Cree doesn't know a darn thing about consumer products. We're not doing it. One day, Jerry Negley walks in my office. He's one of the scientists. He goes, hey, I need to show you something. Okay. He goes, I know you said not to work on this, and I had, but he goes, but I did it anyways. I want you to see this, and it's an LED light bulb. And he shows me this LED light bulb, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going, shit. I said we weren't going to do it, but no one else has done it. And this is good. I mean, this looks just like a light bulb. And I'm going, we're going to have to figure out how to do it. And, and so the risk at the time, the worry was, how does a company that's really a semiconductor company that knows a little bit about being in the B2B commercial lighting business, get into the consumer products business? I mean, we've already stretched so many times. We're going to screw this up at some point, right? And the way we rationalized the decision with the board was, look, we need a brand to sell our commercial lighting products. And we need the market to embrace LED lighting. If the market just buys more LED lighting, we'll sell more LED. So that's good for our business. If we do this bulb thing, the worst case scenario is we will have the best brand building campaign you can ever imagine. In other words, instead of spending hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising that you should be interested in LED lighting, we're going to spend that money selling products that actually are the idea with our name on them, and that will build the brand. And so that was the genesis of the idea. And so over 12 months from the day I saw that prototype till 12 months later, in secret, the team, they developed it. They built a production line. They got Home Depot to sign up to buy it. And they put it together a national TV advertising campaign. And 12 months later, the product was launched. And about 50 people inside of Cree knew it the day we launched it because it had been a secret that long. All right, Warriors, I am saturated. And I know that if you're listening all the way through to the end, then you are more prepared than ever to take on this energy transition with renewed vigor, strength, insight, and tactical advice. 
the wisdom and golden nuggets that Chuck continues to share of his encounters, of his work, it has left an indelible impact on my life, and I'm sure that it will on yours as well. I hope that you would take some time to share what was it that stood out for you in this conversation with Chuck Swoboda. We always post these episodes to LinkedIn, so a simple comment in that post would just be amazing and flattering. And hey, if you share it, I'm both humbled and honored. If you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Follow Math, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion, along with social media links, book recommendations, book links to Chuck's book, and more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. While you're there, please take a couple minutes to fill out that listener survey I mentioned at the beginning of part one. It truly helps as we strive to make this better for you. I really do read every question. Again, that's mysuncast.com forward slash survey. I hope that you'll tune in next week for more inspiring and tactical advice. As Tuesdays, we feature short form episodes we call Tactical Tuesdays. We introduce you to subject matter experts in 20 to 30 minute bite-sized nuggets designed to help give you specific insights that are very interesting, at least to make you more interesting in your networking and your conversations and dinner. And every Thursday is a longer form conversation with founders, executives, change makers, and thought leaders of the clean economy, much like Chuck Swoboda. We explore their origin stories, glean their on-the-ground insights and advice, and delve into their personal business and life hacks, as all of this is in service of helping you level up your game and be well-equipped for the journey from apprentice to master. Hey, speaking of master, if you're newbie to this industry and just trying to find your way around, I highly encourage you to join our free Facebook group, The Energy Guild to network with hundreds of other clean energy professionals, get access to our exclusive trainings, mentorship, and guild-only guides, so much more. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks for lending us your ears. Thanks for showing up again, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.